Welcome to The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. Today, our host, Jason Felger, and general partner, Saurabh Sharma, sit down with Palo Alto Network's CIO, Naveen Suchi, to discuss the digital native imperative. I'm thrilled to introduce you to our guest today, Naveen Suchi. Naveen's experience spans software development, IT infrastructure, and leading technology organizations from Fortune 500 companies to startups. Currently, Naveen is the Chief Information Officer of Palo Alto Networks. In this role, he was responsible for Palo Alto Networks solutions to drive growth in SaaS security, while also building a world-class and global IT organization. Naveen is on the board of advisors for several fast-growing technology companies, including Zoom and Rubrik, but he also advises several early-stage startups. Welcome, Naveen. Thank you. And of course, my colleague, Saurabh Sharma. Saurabh is a general partner at Jump and leads our investments in IT and data infrastructure and application software. He has extensive background in product and operations at high-growth startups and started his career as a high-performance computing researcher. Welcome, Saurabh. Thank you, Jason. Glad to be here and uh, welcome, Naveen. Thanks, Saurabh. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Well, Naveen, let's, um, let's start with a, a kind of broad perspective, but also you know, get into your background a little bit and how you got to where you are today. So it, it seems the role of IT in the CIO is just really dramatically evolved. And presently, it's just as much about transforming the organization and not just the technology. Uh, companies are increasingly digital, they're agile, they're software driven. Uh, so I'd love to have you take us through your background, your journey to your current position and your current mandate and how that's just evolved over time. Yeah, sure, Jason. Um, like other uh, first generation immigrants, I came from a country called India, uh, Kashmir, actually from a state in Kashmir, a very small place. Um, I call myself like when I was growing up, Kuchmanduk, which is this notion of you are a frog in a small well and you haven't seen the bigger world outside. And so it has been a huge um, learning in terms of awareness and outlook and that has increased throughout uh, both when I went to Bangalore for my studies in computer engineering. And then when I came to us first in Arkansas in the middle of nowhere to Walmart, and then later on for the last 20 years, I've been in Bay Area working for both tech companies like Cisco, as well as startups from an engineering standpoint, and then another retailer uh, gap. And then now for the last five years, I have been the CIO at um, Palo Alto Networks. It's been a fantastic journey, one um, where I've been privileged to get a lot of opportunities uh, as well. Uh, when it comes to the role of the CIO, it's an exciting time. And as CIO, um, your job is never the same each day. Uh, what I find especially interesting is you have to go broad and yet you have to deliver with depth. And then it's amazing to problem solve with your peers and you get to solve either small or big problems. And then if you think about, I, I talked to quite a few CIOs uh, in the Valley, also in Midwest or uh, in South, you see a big mind shift uh, change in CIOs over the last several years as technology has taken a much more central role in um, companies' strategy. 
and forward-leaning CIOs are increasingly finding opportunities to say yes rather than saying no. And uh, that's a big shift that I see. They are not letting risk be a barrier to innovation. The other thing that I'm seeing is um, this notion of performing under the same level of intensity and speed of delivery that sales or product teams are expected to deliver at. Now, that's one of the things that um, we try to hold ourselves at very high levels at Palo Alto Networks is that we, are we delivering at the same level of intensity as my as our peers are? Let me just sort of tagging on to that a little bit, right? I mean, taking a little bit of sort of macro view, right? We have uh, heard this narrative, uh, obviously, uh, for many years now that software is eating the world. And more recently, it's, it's kind of obviously transformed into almost every company is becoming a, a software company. Given that sort of shift in mindset at the strategic executive level, it almost seems that there must be a paradigm shift in how the CIOs see this. So I'm curious that how your role has evolved uh, personally uh, between different organizations, as you've seen, or uh, what you're hearing from your counterparts of where whatever the work CIO does is actually the drive revenue driving engine versus just running the rails in some sense. Being at Palo Alto Networks, we are a digital first company, right? So right. like it's like an oxymoron to say, you know, what is the digital strategy for our company? We are a digital company. When I was at Gap uh, before this, it was a different matter, right? Uh, we were working with merchants. We were working with creative people who were designing high fashion. And the business was of building great brand and great set of products. But there was an acknowledgement and an urgency to uh, building um, and expanding on the online footprint. There was an urgency to... Um, tying uh, omni-channel experience. And there was an urgency to building innovation in terms of how customers consume the products, whether they are in the store, whether they are online, how inventory can be pulled together, uh, how POS can be managed in a more virtual manner, how you can use Wi-Fi as an example to drive traffic patterns and understand better about the customer. So all of those innovations came into being uh, while I was there at uh, Gap. Uh, so Gap went through a lot of transformation, not unlike other retailers have gone through. And I would say, um, Saurabh, um, my experience is it's not enough. If you look at boards today, uh, I still feel the boards are don't have enough technologists on the boards. There's definitely not enough CIOs on the boards for sure. I would forget CIOs, for example, there are not enough CTOs on the board either. And there was also a time when there was this notion of a chief digital officer. I never thought that that term would work because now you have set, set up another leader off on the side responsible for the digital front end. All the resources are with the CIO or someone equivalent to a CIO. Uh, that doesn't work. Either you have the wrong CIO and you need to replace that person or you need to make the CDO the CIO. So I think you have seen that shift back to a front-end, more front-facing CIO. So I think, you know, you'll get fired as a CIO for not having a stable infrastructure, but you won't win in the business without having a CIO who can drive business strategy with, you, with their peers. That's that's a great way to put it. That makes a lot of sense. Naveen, the 
the future of the workplace is something that we're all talking about, particularly right now as companies are starting to contemplate coming back and kind of hear it again and again, you know, work is something that you do. It's not a place that's become a, a little bit more of an actual acceptable terminology and acceptable reality for many of us. How do you think about, you know, are we, are we at a permanent shift? Have we actually gone towards, you know, a holistically or predominantly remote workplace for employees? Do you think we're coming back? And if you can kind of layer in your perspective of, you know, sitting in the Bay Area, working for a technology company, I think that's kind of one set of expectations. But how does that play out in manufacturing and healthcare and other industries? And, and obviously, you know, the technologies that we might need to be thinking about to, to balance this, uh, this kind of new area that we're in. The short answer is yes, hybrid, hybrid especially is here to stay. And my thinking has significantly evolved and my biases have shifted dramatically in front of, in face of data that shows uh, that those biases were incorrect. For example, uh, I was a big believer of having everyone together at work coming every day having great relationships with R&D as an example. We're in the same office, same floors, worked very closely together. And uh, we firmly believed our speed of innovation was directly correlated to having uh, this intimacy of um, connections in person rather than um, anything else. And um, over the last, what, 16 months now, that hasn't been there. We have hired, for example, our tech company has probably hired thousands of people and they have never been to an office. They probably have never met any other person from our company in, in person. And yet pace of innovation, speed of innovation, delivery has not slowed down at all. I'll give you another example for us personally, we set up an India COE. Like I've done India COEs before right. and we would send people over, we would fly people over from there, we'll fly people from here. We have done none of that, right? It's been all virtual. And what has been interesting is, let's say the engineering managers in my team, they have had more time to train and bring up to speed the COE people because they have more flexibility and it's not a nine to five job anymore. And uh, that has been a huge win, whereas if they had come to work every day during regular hours, and then we are asking them to work either evenings or in the early mornings, it's a huge burden on folks. So that flexibility that has, that has come as a result of being digitally native wherever you are has actually delivered a much faster ramp for our folks in India. We are ultimately humans want connection. So we, we still want connection. That's why I said hybrid is the place it's going to change to. But at the same time, increasingly, whether it's tech related jobs, software related opportunities, even recruiting or HR or legal or finance, and you look at all these different departments, a lot of the work can be done all uh, remotely. And in fact, uh, you get more focused time and you can be more productive. And we actually measured productivity quite extensively too. And um, there's little to no drop off that we could see. 
That's amazing. It's uh, definitely a new world. We're all preparing ourselves, both mentally and then with all the resources. You know, one of the things is, uh, I think at, at this point, pretty much everyone is almost comfortable in using Zoom and Slack, right? That's kind of the de facto standards. So maybe just thinking about the, the kind of technologies and form factors, right, that will take shape uh, to kind of the future workplace and all the technologies that would be embedded into that. Yeah. So first, let's think about security itself. Uh, the tax surface has significantly widened. And there is a need for um, zero trust security that is pervasive across your endpoints, your cloud infrastructure, as well as your data centers, your campuses, or follow assets wherever they are. And you need we need to think about, uh, do we have pervasive amount of visibility into that? And then can we take effective remediation actions in very fast manner. You know, it's still scary out there in terms of what you can see from SolarStorm to even the static code analysis tools being hacked and uh, figuring out a way to have technology that is deployed and can find those issues faster and resolve them is quite important. Second is on the technology side, Water cooler conversations, yeah. whiteboarding, that those are the things that you miss. And and either it's going to be you come in for a few days a week and do that, or you have technology that enables that more and more. It's still a area that is that's open for a lot of innovation. Uh, I think also managers traditionally were never trained to do a great job with hybrid teams. You know, so when you are a fully distributed team, everyone is on level playing field. But when you are hybrid teams, the bad habits can creep in, you know, where um, those who are digitally remote can be ignored in meetings or in sessions. And so how do you ensure that you continue to pay attention to your entire workforce and make them inclusive, make them feel inclusive and make them feel equally productive? So... Uh, whether those are e-learning capabilities, whether those are technologies that make it easier for hybrid teams to work and collaborate together. Um, There is a seamless transition between what is online and offline. You know, let's maybe uh, go a little granular on, you know, the the, the CIO's day-to-day ecosystem and thinking about, when you're talking about, you know, digital native imperative of every company, and I'm going to keep you know, Palo Alto will be out of it, as you said, you know, but I'm just thinking about a traditional company that is making those shifts. They're becoming cloud first now. They're moving to cloud as a starting point. So maybe give a high level view of what cloud native or digital native stack for a new age company looks like or should look like. Yeah. Let me start with the second question first, because the harder one is the, is probably the more urgent one to answer. And that is, how do you transform your IT organization or your technology organization to be cloud first, right? If you look at uh, traditional infrastructure, and I have worked in infrastructure for a long time now, uh, there is a massive evolution in people and the way they work and what they work on. Increasingly, there is little differentiation between a software engineer in app development and a software engineer in infrastructure teams. 
this notion of site reliability engineering is taking on a bigger hold, not just in companies like ours, but even in other companies, they want to adopt this methodology because it drives a right level of SLOs or SLAs between business and IT. In terms of application development, really having this notion of whether it's two pizza boxes size teams or teams uh, that are agile, whether you use scrum-based methodology or whatever the methodology is, teams uh, are moving towards a iterative-based approach to development because the speed of with which you have to drive change is high. And you don't want to build requirements for nine months in advance and then see all your business shift. That technology stack changes, your whole pipeline of development changes, and then how you secure that pipeline becomes imperative as well. So you're no longer thinking about security in production only, you're thinking of security all the way through the development lifecycle. And then how do you train your developers to be security minded because there is traditionally 100 developers to one security engineer. Then if you look at um, the technology stack itself, uh, you are in a more microservices, services-based architecture. And that's not new, right? We have had right. services-based architecture since 90s. and I've been right. taught, uh, But having this encapsulation of the database with your app, app, with your application logic and having it in microservices makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, it brings with it tremendous amount of complexity of managing those microservices. Now you have hundreds and thousands of microservices Right, they're, they're connecting and talking to each other. They have security risks. They have uh, operational risks. You know, in terms of availability, you don't know what your website is down. You don't know what caused the website down. There are hundred other reasons. There could be hundred reasons for it. And so there are new observability tools. There are new monitoring tools. There are new ways to manage your applications as a result of a distributed architecture. So. Uh, it's an interesting and a very fundamental shift. And what I found um, sort of giving the right environment where you allow folks to make mistakes, they embrace this because they want to learn, they want to improve their capabilities on a daily basis. And uh, there may be some resistance, but most of the time it is enthusiasm. They just, there is change. And, and we need to we need to do a better job as leaders to manage through that change for our employees. I, I can't help notice, right? But uh, you mentioned a couple of times kind of this things that evolve around the developer. So it's almost like the you know the traditional buys and and traditional sort of hierarchy always has been top down. But it seems that there's a lot more decision driven by the faster de- developer, you know, productivity de- developer deployment. And then how do you go to, how do you provide the stack that is basically drive the quick adoption from the developer side versus necessarily making a large decision at the enterprise level and move down? Yeah. Just thinking uh, the way I think about it is ultimately what is IT responsible for, right? We have responsibility of building things, whether that is building through our own development or bringing in a SaaS company and integrating that into our fold. Ultimately we're providing a set of services through either products or through a service like help desk and who is providing that service It's primarily the engineers, everyone else is like overhead. So I think having that notion and understanding that it's inverted pyramid and 
and we are ultimately helping them become productive. I mean, you've gone into a lot around where your priorities are and, and where they've shifted. I want to see if we can kind of dive in a bit for everyone, just how you think about the prioritization of, of the spectrum of responsibilities you've had. You've touched on everything from one end of executing and, and delivering against a cloud native infrastructure to you've mentioned just being more customer centric and being with customers. It is a extremely broad set of responsibilities from being you know, kind of customer and in, in, in outward facing all the way to, as you said, building the things and deploying what needs to be done. It'd be great to give people a sense of how broad is that, that mandate? And how do you just think about the prioritization of those, those massive responsibilities, both internally and externally? It's uh, various, probably four to five, it's actually four to five different strategies coming together. There's a strategy around customer journey and making the customer journey amazing, beautiful, simple, great experience for our customers. Uh, there is the employee journey and making the employees as productive as they can be. There is the data element using data as a strategic weapon. There's the automation journey, this notion of the company is running all the time on algorithms. And um, there is a few other things, but if you think of broadly speaking, those are four or five things that every IT organization is focused on. Now there will be specific strategies for a company that is in retail or manufacturing or others, but these four are fairly interchangeable and probably in some form or shape in a strategy for an, for an IT organization, regardless of where they are. Um, so if you think about um, beyond security, which always continues to be in top one or two priority for CIOs, the two others that I often hear and most often hear is data and what are we doing with data and how can we turn data into a strategic weapon for the company. And then second is around automation. You know, that has even accelerated further under this pandemic. That's a, that's a great uh, segue into uh, something that... You know, I've been thinking about the world of automation, right? Uh, we, we, I think it's uh, it's pretty fashionable to talk about automation and digital transformation for every company. It's um, it's probably, you know, every uh, annual report, uh, you know, big narrative is around that. What is your opinion on the transformation and the automation, digital transformation phase we are in today? Yeah, so uh, while it is true that software systems or SaaS companies, or if you're building your own software, that is the, that's the core of what your automation is around. I'm increasingly impressed by how little it touches beyond the core functionality. You know, that's if true. you look at a day-to-day, -day, we were doing analysis of a day-to-day -day financial analyst in our company, as an example. How much time are they spending on spreadsheets versus in systems? That's right. How many decisions are they making using spreadsheets? What does their day-to-day -day look like? And whether it's Microsoft productivity tools or Google productivity tools, they are probably using those more than anything else. And so you would say automation hasn't touched them as much as you would think that it has. Right. I'm not saying, um, I'm not deriding a lot of the great applications can be built on spreadsheets and people have. But if you think beyond that, every time we want to, forecast about business, 
you want to have some level of automation associated with it rather than just having humans do it every time. So I feel like process automation, if I look at IT back office automation, there's tremendous amount of opportunities there. So for example, we use our SOAR tools like Demisto for our IT back office automation. We use RPA for front office automation and talk to many CIOs in, in, the, in different companies and they are big in this journey because they see immediate value. This has been one of the revelations also, the value curve is much faster in terms of the businesses themselves. And then if you look at automation beyond that, whether it's low code, no code, that is starting to take off, not taken off as much yet, but it will. Uh, and then if you, if you think about um, other ways where we can find ways to reduce the number of manual touches, whether it's activation of a product, creating an opportunity by a sales rep, taking an order, and then you go into proactive and predictive business use cases, which are traditionally done by employees, can be supplemented or complemented by machine learning. Naveen, has the, has the pandemic changed the priority of automation initiatives for you? Many technology priorities got shifted over the last you know, year and a half, and, and automation is one that's kind of uniquely centered around people in many respects. So has it accelerated, decelerated, kind of stayed the same uh, as a category in and of itself? It has significantly accelerated for us. We, we started the year before with 20,000 hours of total FTE automation that we measured. And we are happy and patted ourselves on the back with that. And we said, why, why not do it 5x more? And we are on target to do 100,000 hours this year. And even then, I feel like we have done little. There is so much more we can do. And that's just one metric of measurement. You can measure in many, many ways. I feel like whether it is uh, how do you look at virtual genius bars? Because give an example, give you an example of help desk. We would have folks come into genius bars and they can get the help any anytime they want it. Now you can't do that. Like, how do you, what do you complement? How do you replace it and still maintain a high NPS score? And so having virtual chat, virtual chatbots that deflect some of the uh, using NLUs and then complement that with having multiple channels of communication from a user to help desk and then having tons of automation in the back end to have like software assets. If you want to get a new software asset, it's just all automated for you. Uh, you drive more persona-based profiling of users and drive change in terms of what tools they need as a result of that. So there is a ton of innovation, actually very interesting innovation that can be done in this area. Yeah, maybe just, uh, I think expanding on that, I mean, so, you know, on the, in the automation realm, we talked about, you know, cloud, which is obviously linked to scale, uh, RPA, which is around process automation. There is obviously a lot of machine learning technologies coming out. Uh, I mean, could you share your successes with which of these that you felt that you've kind of tested and have obviously proven it out that these are all there and maybe the efficacy on driving value? I think you already referred to that, but just maybe calling out things that you personally tested and, um, and felt that these are at a maturity level for everyone to kind of try it out. Yeah. RPA for sure 
has been there. Soar for sure, both in SOC automation as well as IT automation. I would say on the NLU front, uh, right. natural language processing and using that to try derive not just context and meaning from data, mm-hmm. from uh, I think increasingly better technologies are coming out both on customer support side, HR support side, as well as IT support side and, and really using um, bots that are not annoying, but actually are helpful, right? right? Yes. I used to find bots incredibly annoying. Uh, vision-based uh, ML is, is there and whether it is physical security and, uh, you know, uh, complementing the guards yeah. or uh, whether it is uh, other technology that uses vision, whether manufacturing or uh, IoT or, you know, other com- traditional companies that require that. Uh, there is increasingly like construction space, all sorts of interesting examples that I've seen. And while some may be in POC stage, some may be in early development stage, some are actually in full-grown deployment stages. The other areas of ML is still work in progress. For example, a lot of proactive and predictive use cases, uh, you have to prove it to the to the users that these are effective. And I know you have a, you have a strong sense on this as well because we have gone through this uh, example, for example, take next best action for sales. Yes. Right? And that's a common use case. Many companies have tried it. Unless you don't show how you came up with that. And even the first example of where a probabilistic model was wrong, uh, folks will use it as a way to say that it doesn't work. Whereas uh, it's a probabilistic model. The other, other learning for us has been being probabilistic model if the error rate is let's say 5% and the error expectation is less than 1%, that's probably not a good use case for it because however many algorithms we try, we can't get to that rate. And data is a huge issue as well. You know, how clean is your data? How how much data do you have? And then uh, finally, the other point I, I felt is it takes time. Like it takes significant amount of time. It takes a lot of experimentation to get even one use case right. Yeah, it's it's uh, you touched a really good point. You know, w- one of the biggest challenge for most companies built around the the value proposition of uh, machine learning and setting your enterprises is is, um, is gaining the trust factor internally. You know, you might have a champion, initial champion, but that for the champion to then uh, get broader adoption is very tough because I think the expectation from the machine is significantly higher than the expectation from a human. How do you think about it? Uh, what are the things that companies can do to you know, set the expectations right? And of course, we talk about within the AI adoption curve, you know, there are elements that are now coming out, which it's more of a question that uh, would those help? And so do you think, you know, one, are you getting more comfortable these technologies as you go? And then what is the best way to kind of build that trust and then get comfortable and drive adoption yeah, it's less about me being comfortable. It's more about my teams, my employees, right. our employees, our customers being comfortable with this. Uh, explainability helps, right? Explainability frameworks help, but it's it's difficult and it's tricky. So, for example, if you take an opportunity, let's say in sales sales cases, you want to drive new space opportunities and you want to predict here is a new space where you should focus. 
And here's the reason why we have said that. If you look at behind the scenes, the algorithm probably is using 150 different features. You're not going to show, show all the 150 features like completely like folks don't understand it. The level of complexity and the level of interaction between an, an algorithm is so high. And so you're kind of dumbing it down and saying, okay, here are the top three factors that are the reasons why you should expect this opportunity to work. And in many of the cases, it does work. So for example, there are companies that are coming out that will explain to you, here is the opportunity score, here is your forecast score. And increasingly sales reps are becoming more and more comfortable using that data. And I think that evolution is gonna take time. The ML models are also gonna improve and our ability to explain those ML models to our uh, employees is gonna improve and evolve as well. I, I think we've talked quite a bit about this, the, the, the infrastructure upgrade, the automation technologies, to the extent you can share, what is top of mind for you, Naveen, from here on, from both the technology perspective and things that you think are still somewhat unsolved or high priority things that you are thinking about uh, and to the extent your counterparts that you talk to uh, are thinking about for the next three to four years? Yeah, the first and foremost is um, as uh, employees start coming back in, it's interesting to say, how do we bring an amazing experience to those employees who want to come back? I think everything related to real-time access to data to drive decisions continues to be a very, very high priority for companies, uh, including ours. How do we drive um, better decisions using access to data that is at our fingertips? And I think... Um, there is a lot of innovation here that's going to continue to happen. And then finally, um, I am a big believer in the company that never sleeps. So how do we constantly find ways to have algorithms running while employees may be sleeping or when the employees come up? Well, Naveen, we always like to end with uh, the entrepreneur and the founder in mind. And, and you work with many startups. So would love your perspective of... One is we've talked about trends. Are there trends and, and technologies that you're thinking of that you kind of seek out and, and would think would be really ripe opportunities for entrepreneurs and founders? And then also, you are a CIO. Um, you have been in this seat for a while. And just your advice of expectations and things to maybe do and not do as entrepreneurs and founders are thinking about selling into the CIO. Let's start with the second one. Founders' passion clearly comes out. Their commitment to their company, their commitment to the idea, their commitment to what they're trying to solve. My advice has been, it's often you come to large companies and you get swayed by orthogonal use cases, which will take your company in the wrong direction and say no to that. You will gain more credibility and the founders are effectively the best salespeople into CIOs, into CISOs. And if you use that as a mechanism to open doors, it will. Uh, in terms of problem spaces, there are, I'm sure, people a lot smarter than me who are working on tremendous amount of ideas. And I hear ideas all the time where they've taken simple existing problems and transformed them, like from insurance to construction to 
God knows everything else is being transformed. Every, I think anytime you see friction, there's an opportunity to change that and simplify that, streamline it, automate it. And so I think about in a B2B company, there are many areas where we have still have friction. I talked about FP&A, how we do planning. Seems like unsexy area, but there are like very traditional companies solving that problem today. And then you get into other use cases, which are security related use cases. There's a ton of opportunity there as well. Awesome. Well, this is, this has been great, Naveen. I mean, just uh, on a lighter note, I, I like to ask, you know, some different questions than our, than our normal thought processes. And you know, thinking about the old school world as we moving to this digital world, what are the things you think you might miss from your analog uh, uh, era, if for lack of a better term, because I mean, we are so automated, we are moving to hyper automation uh, <laughs> and things are moving so fast and rapid. Uh, there's obviously the mental capacity. So I'm curious, you know, things that you think could have stayed the same, but obviously are going to change. Well, uh, I love vinyl and they have taken a huge comeback. They have made a huge comeback. Uh, I think books, I still love holding a book in hand and while they have been transformed and you can read on Kindle and the convenience is there, uh, the quality of shuffling paper, I love it. And so I'm sure a lot of folks feel that feel that way as well. Well, Naveen, uh, this was an excellent conversation and Saurabh, thank you both for joining. Uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you both. Thank you, Naveen. Thank you, Saurabh. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. If you have an idea for the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, please contact podcast at jumpcap.com. Thank you.